Um, all right, so if you remember last week, I was excited to get beyond uh, chapter eight and just the declaration and say that Jesus is the centerpiece of what's new about the new covenant. And uh, I, that is still absolutely and utterly true. Um, so now we're, we're I want to jump up to 10, and I want to just walk you through what we're going to encounter as we move into the next few chapters. Up to this point, there's been contrast about covenants. There's been contrast about how God spoke to us. Jesus has been established as the centerpiece of this. He is obviously the mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant. But all of that is academic study in a way until we get to the point where we realize that more significant in a, in a way, I think I could say it more significant is the change than the change between covenants is the change in us because we are the product of the new covenant. And that's what I want you to understand here today. So we're going to walk through, I'm going to work through, uh, in uh, N.T. Wright's New Testament, because I like the way it goes. And so I'm just going to read a few verses for you. If you've got your, uh, your Bible, you can pull it out. We'll go through it. But 10.1 says this, and, and this is N.T. Wright's uh, The Kingdom New Testament. The law you see possesses a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the actual form of the things themselves. All right, now what does that mean? That the law was unable, and I want you to think about this word, the law was unable to embody the good things that it spoke of. Uh, you know, Paul goes on and says, so was the law uh, that which is good made evil? Well, you know, God forbid. It was the righteousness of God. It revealed the thing. It built the society of Israel. And, and, and this is the beautiful thing about the new covenant. And this is one of the good learning experiences I've had digging into this stuff. The law went from external to us on the outside, influencing us out there, to being internal, put in our hearts and in our minds. Now, that is a huge significance, because think about this. What he's saying here is that the law was only a shadow of what the good thing was that it was and that it represented. And that's why I chose the word tonight that I want us to think about, that the law couldn't embody the righteousness that it was talking about. But here's the good news. It has now. The first embodiment of the law and the good things of the law was who? Jesus. He fulfilled the law. He walked that law out. He was the first one to have that law in his heart. That's why he never despaired. That's why he despised the shame of the cross. That's why he never, while fully being touched by the feeling of our infirmities and fully, totally uh, being impacted by how we feel, by our darkness, by our confusion. He never bailed on it. He never gave up. He never joined in humanity's chorus to, to reject God, to, to, to call God a failure. All right? And so he embodied the law. But think about the first thing that's said about the new covenant. It's that I will put my laws in your heart and write them in your mind. So who else now, as a result of the new covenant, embodies the good things of the law, the good things that the law foreshadowed? Ronnie does. He raised his hand. 
You do. I do. Jason does. This is super significant, guys. Let me walk through this a little bit with you. Okay? Jesus embodied the law. He brought to earth and he brought to this, this merger, this blend of divinity, the Godhead, and humanity. And now the things which were just a shadow can be seen, can be touched, and can be touched by. So think about what, like the way John introduces his first letter. Uh, you know, the word of God, the word of life that we have seen, that we have handled. Nobody could handle the law before, but now they can. Nobody could, nobody could get their hands really around it. It was something external to them that created a relationship, that they, it created a path for obedience. But now there's something super special about this. And like I said, when I was first starting to study this, I, I didn't get it, but I'm starting to get it now. As we go through chapter 10, in verse uh, 5 through 7, it says this, That's why when the Messiah comes into the world, this is what he says. You didn't want sacrifice and offerings. Instead, you've given me a body. Now that sounds weird. I've always, I never knew what that meant. But now understanding the significance of God taking the law, which was the basis of the righteousness that he was governing and, and creating a relationship with the nation Israel with, he's taken that law and he's put it in our hearts. And so now it's, you didn't want sacrifice and offering. Instead, you've given me a body. The contrast is not between the law and some form of no law. The contrast is between what the law could represent and how it could manifest in the old covenant in the form of sacrifices and offerings. And God did that to accomplish his purpose to have a mediated relationship with the children of Israel. He wanted to be with them in the midst of them. He wanted them to be with him from the beginning. You can read about it in Sinai. But when they freaked out and backed up like that, he accommodated this with these kind of sacrifices. But then later, as you know, in the prophets, uh, he says, you know, I never desired sacrifice. He likes the contrite heart. He likes living in us. So here we are. You didn't want sacrifice and offerings. Instead, you've given me a body. There's the contrast. Not the law and not law. The contrast is the law expressed uh, as obedience and sacrifice versus the law in the heart. So the answer to the righteousness that the law foreshadowed is now embodied in Jesus and in Jesus' body. That's us. You gave me a body. Everything, everything. This is why the, uh, Jesus can say that all of, uh, of, of the law and the prophets hang on love. Because love is this embodiment in us of the law. And of these things, things of love, there is no law against that. Because it's the fulfillment, it's the embodiment of it. Let me keep reading. You didn't want sacrifice and offerings. Instead, you've given me a body. You didn't like burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, this is Jesus, the Messiah saying, look, here I am. This is what it says about me in the scroll of the book. I've come, O oh God, to do your will. All right, now I want, you to, I want you to think with me what the new covenant has done to the phrase, the will of God. Under the Old Covenant, where the law was external, the will of God 
was to live according to that law. And the will of God was when you failed to do so, that there was a sacrifice. And then there was even a sacrifice, Hebrews said earlier, remember studying it, where the high priest went in once a year for sins committed in ignorance. So you have, you have this sort of three-way thing going. You have the law as a standard of righteousness revealing the nature and will of the Father in that way. And then you had a system around that law that enabled the Israelites to maintain a relationship and enabled God to be their God and them to be his people. But it wasn't an internal, it was an external thing. And so they would go, and the, the teaching in Hebrews goes on a little bit here in chapter 10, and it talks about how the high priest had to continually offer. But the system was a system where God's will was that our relationship be maintained, that the children of Israel's relationship be maintained. Be faithful to me. Uh, you know, stay with me. Obey. If you do this, I'll do this. But it was all about his desire to be the God of his people, the God of his children. So that whole system was a maintenance system. Look at this one. You didn't want sacrifice and offerings. Instead, you've given me a body. You didn't like burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, look, here am I. This is what it says about me in the scroll, the books. I've come, O oh God, to do your will. Now, I may be teaching a little bit over my pay grade here, but what, what I see in this passage, this declaration of Scripture, is that at one point, the limits that sin and the flesh and all of that put on, on quote, the will of God was that the people would learn and obey, be mediated by the priest, and so on, and God used that to maintain and nurture that relationship for a long time. But there was an older destiny, a more sacred destiny. It's alluded to here. This is what it says about me in the scroll in the books. Now, I don't understand everything I know about that, but the fulfillment in Jesus goes back to before Jesus was incarnate. It goes back to the whole design of, of God with us, Emmanuel, incarnate, God with us. And, and so what he now says is, I've come, O God, to do your will. So think about the will of God as it was primarily manifest in the Old Covenant, being a will that started out here and aimed people back towards God. Does that make sense? So God's will was that they... They obeyed. God's will was that they, they uh, when they messed up, they brought the proper sacrifice, they walked away, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and knew, were affirmed uh, in their relationship with God. The will of God, though, was never designed to just be that. The will of God is aimed the other direction. It always has been. Uh, Israel was called to be a, a, a kingdom of, of priests. It was called to be the, the source for evangelizing the world. It was called to be the source for bringing that back. It never materialized that way because the system had to be accommodated that, was, that the will was aimed inward to keep pulling the Israelites into relationship with God, to keep pulling them close. And, and God used all kinds of things, prophets and kings and uh, other stuff. This will is the will to go out. Behold, I have come to do your will. You can't, you can't say that that 
is fully defined by an interpretation that says Jesus came just to do what the Father, you know, do the will and stay clean, stay straight. No, Jesus came to reveal the Father out here. And, 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 and so think about it. Let, let's keep going a little bit. Uh, he says, when he says earlier, you didn't want and you didn't like sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, and sin offerings, all of which are offered in accordance with the law. Then he says, look, I've come to do your will. He takes the first away so he can establish the second. And, and we're talking about the doing of God's will. And it's by that will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus the Messiah once for all. All right. I don't know if I'm getting this crossed. I'm excited about it, though, so I'll keep trying. Uh, we were made. Adam and Eve were made in the first place. And they were commissioned, uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion. And that outward, that outward commission was cut short. It wasn't cut off. It was just diminished by the fact that they turned away from the Lord. So then the energy of God had to be spent back inside this way. The children of Israel later were delivered. They were delivered from slavery so that they could possess a land. But what happened was they backed away from that because of who they thought they were and who they didn't recognize who they were. They backed away from that, and then the nation had to be, and the culture had to be, and the laws and the temple and the sacrifices all had to be so they could be drawn back in to God. And so now the new covenant has come and been fulfilled in the one who represents both man and God so that the will of God can now once again be embodied in us, turn and face outward, because there is no inward need. You see what I'm saying? We are in. We are already in. And we'll see that in just a moment. We are already in. So now, you and I have to come to grips with the fact of this verse that I just read. This is in uh, Hebrews 10, 10. And it's by that will, the will of God, the will that Jesus came to do, the will that was written about him, and honestly, about us in the scroll, in the book, it's by that will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus the Messiah once for all. So now where we're at in the study in Hebrews 10 is we've got the, the writer of Hebrews comparing covenants, comparing Jesus, establishing a better thing than angels, establishing a better thing, a higher priesthood, then this criteria, but all of it is about the fact that you and I are in. We're not working to get in. We're not trying to understand the will of the Lord to get in. As a matter of fact, what this amazing verse says is that it is by the very will of the Lord that we have been sanctified, perfected, once for all, forever. The challenge of being a believer in the New Covenant is believing that by God's will as the cause and Christ doing God's will as the effect, you and I 
don't have to be managed back in anymore. We are in. We are in. And it's easy to talk about, sort of, and it's easy to think about as a doctrine, but I think it's hard to believe. Because we still manifest and still have a whole world around us accusing us and suggesting that we are out. And that the main thrust of the work that Jesus did is to get us in. But that's not true. The get us in, draw us in, keep us in, perfect us forever. That's why this is so critical to understand. It's a once forever. It's already been done. And now our job is to live it out, live from it. Live from it. So now we don't go to God to be accepted back in. And, and let, me, let me show you the significance of that. Verse 14 says, By a single sacrifice, you see, he has made perfect forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit bears witness to this too. For after it, it is said, now, this is amazing to me, and I didn't see the significance of it until recently. He goes back, the writer of Hebrews goes back and summarizes the covenant. And he says it this way, This is the covenant I will establish with them after those days, says the Lord. I will give them my laws in their heart and will write them uh, upon their minds. Then he adds, and now he jumps down to the end of the Jeremiah covenant that's stated in 8, and says, And I shan't ever remember their sins and all their lawless deeds. Now, wait a minute. There's a linkage created here that brackets everything about the new covenant that Jesus secured with his blood. One of them is, I will give them my laws in their heart, and I will write them upon their minds. And then the other end of that bracket is, I won't remember their sins or their lawless deeds. That is the container into which all of the other relational promises of the new covenant abide. That is the container in which you live right now. We're not outside trying to get in. We're inside being nurtured to believe so that the will can be done through us and the will is not a simple follow-the-law obedience thing. The will is that we might declare the glory of God, that we might go up and might go out, and people could know it. Let me keep going. Where these are put away, meaning where sin is put away, there is no longer a sacrifice for sin. So this is why the old morphed into the new. Because in the old covenant, those sacrifices for sin were a necessity because the children of Israel needed to keep being drawn in annually, drawn in. Uh, and, you know, we talked about it a little bit because the blood of bulls and goats can't cleanse your conscience. The implication of that is that the sacrifice of Jesus one time forever does. And if you and I are living in such a way that we aren't experiencing a clean conscience, we're living in a confusing embrace of both covenants. Remember in Galatians, Paul talks about who's bewitched you. What he was talking about was not making them confused about doctrine. It was, it was them hedging their bet to go back and 
lean on circumcision as a mark of covenant or a mark of righteousness. Our job is to believe what he says happened, that Jesus once for all has cleansed you and begin to just step out in that way, begin to live that way, begin to see yourself that way, begin to confess yourself that way, begin to expect life to come at you like that. Begin to respond to life in such a way that, hey, you gave me a body. <laughs> I'm here to do your will. And your will involves the declaration of the goodness that we have as sons, the declaration of the, of the love of the Father. God's will is not primarily anymore for you and I to just toe the line. I'm not saying we shouldn't. Matter of fact, I think when we start to really understand this, we're going to find, as Paul says, that we can reckon ourselves dead to sin. And if, 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 if it brushes us, if it you know, flies over and poops on us or something, it's going to be a quick matter to just and, and continue to move forward. Because our hearts are the hearts of sons. Let me keep going. This is the big transition now. The covenant's been established. The covenant's been described, the betterness of it the over angels, the, uh, uh, the priesthood's been established and, and fulfilled in Jesus, the covenant's been articulated, and now, now we're down to the practice. And for the rest of the book of Hebrews, and I never really understood this transition either until recently, for the rest of the book of Hebrews, we're going to be, it's going to be teaching us about us and our life as sons. In chapter 11, it talks about faith. In chapter 12, it talks about discipline, and it talks about coming to God. And uh, it's going to be an incredible journey. We're going to start in 19 just a second. Yeah, Richard. Um, the, uh, if I'm understanding correctly, the sacrifices were meant to keep the children of Israel cl cl close to as a as a as a as a people correct i think so so, and, so, and the, so the sacrifice... help them help them be confident that god was their god and that they were in right standing with him kind of he god was using the sacrifices as a hook to keep them where they within the body and yeah. so now what's changed is the relationship as we this relationship that we have god is is the thing that keeps us we may not understand everything but we know because of that relationship is that yeah, yes and and also because uh if you remember one of the 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 contrasts that i i talked about a couple weeks ago was that there was a worship that was external and then there's a worship now that's internal there's an adoration inside and i'm not saying that that in the old system that there weren't people who really really loved god that's not the point the point is that they came from the outside with that love and in, in where we're at now, it's kind of typified by what Jesus said to the woman in the well. The Father seeks those that worship in spirit and truth. We're invited into this relationship. Let me read this next section. You'll see, you'll see what I'm talking about. Verse 19 says, as a result of all this, so then, my brothers and sisters, we have boldness to go into the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. He has inaugurated a brand new living path through the curtain that is his earthly body. So just stop there and think about it. This isn't a relationship 
that we hand off to a priest, not even the priest Jesus, and then he takes it and takes it to the altar, and he does the appropriate things, and we stand there, and then there's a report back, it's all good. It's not like that. We don't hand our relationship off anymore. We're, we're in Jesus. John 14, 20 says, in that day, after the Holy Spirit comes and is revealed and all stuff, in that day you're going to know that I'm in my Father. All right? There's no separation there. There's closeness. There's in. There's mush together in. Not counting that there's a paracritic difference, but there's in. It's really in. And you're in me. That means that as close as he is with his Father, we are with the Father because we're in him. And he is in us. And so all that the Father wants to do, he does in Jesus. That's why Jesus say, when you see me, you see the Father. We've got to get this. We don't have a bridge, I mean a distance to bridge anymore. And every time we, we live as if we've got to do something to get closer, we are wasting our energy in the wrong direction, and we're deceiving ourselves and in a sense, and I'm not talking in a sinful sense, I don't think, but in a sense, we're denying the finished nature of what God did. Because keep in mind, when we go way back here in the chapter, uh, N.T. Wright translates verse 10 this way, and it's by that will, whose will? Not mine, not yours. The active will that causes us to be sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus the Messiah once for all, is God's will. You're a son, not by your choice, not by happenstance of a lucky birth, but because God willed it from before the foundation of the world. I understand how, uh, like, reform guys would, would see in this the makings of, of, like, a predestination or an election. I just happen to think that it's not individualistic like that. I think the individual is Jesus, and that we, as Paul says in Ephesians, are all predestined to the adoption of sons, to be conformed to the image of him. But the difference is, as long as we hold in our hearts and minds that there's a gulf between us and God, or that we can create one by, by bad behavior, or by neglect, or by ignorance, or misinterpreting scripture, or something, we're going to be putting energy into a journey that has no basis in reality, into a journey that is not connected to Jesus. This is why this idea of going back to Second Chronicles, and I know I harp on this a lot, but it's not just insulting to the finished work of Jesus. It is distracting in the, in, 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 in the greatest possible way to the truth of who we are. The reason that there's not more authority being released on the earth is because we don't know who we are. It's not because we don't think God has authority. We know he made the place. We know Jesus is the king of kings. But we still feel like we've got to juggle the pieces to get properly plugged in as if it's our will to be plugged in that makes us plugged in. What this says is, no, it's not your will. It's Jesus' will. And he had humanity wrapped up in him, and he had divinity wrapped up in him. And so, yes, Richard, it is the relationship, but it is the relationship. That's what I, I, I know we've got to get this somehow. We are sons of God in the new covenant in Christ, fully wrapped up in him. Can't be any closer. Can be more aware, 
can be more comfortable with it, certainly, can be more knowledgeable about what it is. And we're going to see, like, the next part, when I get done here in the, tonight, the next part in 10 says, if we deliberately keep on sinning, then there's no sacrifice for us. And all of a sudden, the rest of Romans sounds like it jumps right back into law, but that's not it. What it jumps into is that how a father disciplines his son, the nurturing that's going on in our lives in the new covenant so that we can live in the fullness of who we are and the fullness of what Jesus did. And then it even culminates by saying, look, we're not going to, to, uh, to an old tabernacle and temple in, in a mountain with smoke. We're going right into the living heart of heaven, right into the tabernacle, right into the spirits of righteous men made perfect, right into Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And then it, it, it's, it makes this amazing statement. Our God is a consuming fire. Now, you know, I'm not ready to preach on that part of it yet. I won't be when I get there, probably. But this is the turning point in this thing. So the will that your stature was created by is not a blend of his will and your will. It's his will. Your will is now designed and called to join that. To believe for that. And I honestly believe that we are all a part of this thing. This is what it says about me in the scroll in the book. I've come, O oh God, to do your will. When we get over to Hebrews chapter 11 in the end of it, there's some amazing statements that are made about all these people of faith, Abraham and you name them, just a big old long list of them. None of them received the fulfillment of their promises because a better thing was being held for them to receive it with you and I. This is not just about us changing our behavior. This is about us realizing that by virtue of the will of God being fulfilled in the God-man, Jesus Christ, we are sons. And we now have access to everything that we need to do what was written in the scrolls, in the books, for the kingdom, for the body of Christ, for us. You know, um, one of the things that I've taught for a long time, and when I first remember, this has been many years ago, when Jesus is talking about that anointing in, in Isaiah 61, you know, uh, the Spirit of the Lord is on me to heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free and all that stuff. I thought, wow, there's something wrong. At the time when I was learning about it, I, was, uh, I just got out of the Assemblies of God, and I was in the Vineyard Church. And it just opened my mind up to some things. And I started really thinking, there's really only one anointing. We emphasize it a lot in the Pentecostal church, charismatic church, that, oh, he's anointed for this, I'm anointed for this, I'm anointed for this and this. That's still us living out there separate. And we're looking for captains to try to take us in closer, take us in deeper, take us up higher. That's not the kind of in, up, and out that we want to live in. We want to come in and go in, in here. So let, let so then, my brothers and sisters, we have boldness to go into the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. He has inaugurated a brand new living path with, uh, through the curtain that is his earthly body. We have a high priest who is over the house of God. Let us, therefore, come to worship with a true heart in complete assurance of faith with our heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. Let me ask you a question, and I'm not doing this to elicit any kind of condemnation or self-condemnation or anything. If you're like me, 
you spent a number of, of uh, years and instances and probably a lot of time and energy utilizing worship to try to come and see your faith bolstered. Come and see your confidence renewed. What this is calling for is come to worship in full assurance of faith. Faith in what? In the fact that his will has made you a son. I don't know how we're going to know when this knowledge begins to manifest in us. I don't know. But I know that we're I know that I know that we will. I know that we will be standing on the cusp of it. And I don't think any of us individually have a, a need to manifest everything that's out there. That's why I think there's a beauty in fellowship. There's a beauty in the body. But we have a position on the foundation and from the foundation of the will of God as expressed through Jesus and as successfully accomplished and turned in by his blood to the fully forgiven mercy met, knowing God, law in our hearts, righteousness in our hearts and in our minds, and identity stamped across us. He's my people. They're my people. You're his people. He's your God. From that position, the Spirit of God can lead us anywhere and to do anything. And again, I go back to this this tendency we have over and over again to repurpose a, a, a system from the past that makes sin the defining factor and repentance the way to overcome that sin. That's not it. If we're going to join and cry out for the Lord to heal our land based on our repentance, we are ignoring this covenant. If we come together and say, in spite of there being occasional evidence to the contrary, we are sons of the living God, sons of the new covenant, and we have access in Christ to all the resources and frankly to all the discipline we need. We have access to the heavenly places. Look what it's saying. And I'm not just talking about ascension. I'm talking about how you think, how I think, how we pray, how we interpret the scripture. Let me read it to you out of the mirror. I don't, I don't preach out of the mirror a lot, but I want to read starting in verse 19 out of the mirror because uh, Francois features the transformation of, of us in redemption. And this is pretty good. So in verse 19, it says, well, let me back up one verse. Um, this is uh, verse 18, and reading it in uh, in N.T. Wright's 18 reads like this. Where these are put away, talking about the sins and lawless deeds, there is no longer a sacrifice for sin. So we'll start there. Francois in uh, 18 says, Sins were dealt with in such a thorough manner that the idea of having to add any further offerings in the future would never again be considered. Nothing that we can personally sacrifice could add further virtue to our innocence. And then in 19, brethren, this means 
that through what the blood of Jesus communicates and represents, we are now welcome to access this ultimate place of sacred encounter with unashamed confidence. So, what is the task of a new covenant son? It is to access the ultimate place of sacred encounter with unashamed confidence. Verse 20, a brand new way of life has been introduced because of his flesh torn on the cross. We have a high priest in the house. We are free to approach him with absolute confidence, fully persuaded in our hearts that nothing can any longer separate us from him. We are invited to draw near now. We are thoroughly cleansed inside and out with no trace of sin stain on our conscience or conduct. The sprinkled blood purges our inner thought patterns. Our bodies also are bathed in clean water. And our behaviors bear witness to this. Our conversation echoes his persuasion. His faithfulness backs his promises. I love that line. Let me read it again. Our conversation echoes his persuasion. This is what I think I'm meaning when I say the process for us to grow in, in the outflow of our new, new covenant sonship and new covenant understanding is simply to, to talk about, talk to ourselves and talk to other people. This is who we are. We're sons of God. I'm a son of God. I'm in this relationship in Christ. I am innocent before the Father. He really doesn't see my sin and remember them anymore. I'm met with mercy. And I guess it's okay to say, you know, I know I need it too sometimes. I mean, I'm not saying that we should deny the reality, but what I am saying is, I love the way he puts it, our conversation, our talk and our walk echoes what God says. Let me keep going. Our conversation echoes his persuasion. His faithfulness backs his promises. That's what Wright's saying earlier in verse 10. That it's by this will, the will that Jesus did, that you are made perfect, complete, forever, by the once for all sacrifice of the Messiah. And if we can get that in our heads, and we can begin to figure out, how do we live this out? How do we live this out? Now, I know that's a big question, because just having me, you know, read the scripture slow five times, and then yell at it, isn't going to make it figure out. But look what it says in here. I'm going to go back to N.T. Wright's just for a second. So now we're down here. Um, let us, verse 22, let us therefore come to worship with a true heart and complete assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's break that down a little bit. So let us therefore come to worship. Okay, we come to worship. With a true heart, a true heart does what? It lines up with the truth, with the revealed aletheia of Jesus. You're the way, the truth, and the life, Lord. What you say about the Father, His will, making us this way, me being a son, constantly being greeted with forgiveness uh, in the form of mercy, and not ever anymore, ever, ever, anywhere, any place, any time, being identified with my sin, and my sin being identified by me in the, in the hearts and the eyes of the Father. That's one of the things that we have to start talking and thinking. Let us therefore come to worship with a true heart and complete assurance of faith. 
How do we how do we get a complete assurance of faith? You know, that's been the question of the healing community for a long time. That's been the question of the word of faith for a long time. How do we do that? I think we do it by interfacing and interacting with God, coming through the veil, which is Jesus' body, accessing him, accessing him through ascension, accessing him through prayer, accessing him through prophecy, accessing him through the fellowship and encouraging and laying hands on one another. Look what it says as we go on. Uh, with our heart sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. Let us hold on tightly to our confession of hope. I don't exactly know how to put our confession of hope into words, but it involves the fact that we are already in union with Father. It involves the fact that Jesus has sufficiently uh, offered his sacrifice that sin is no longer the relational or culturally defining issue in any of our lives. Remember at the end of 9, it says Jesus is coming back, and when he does, it, w it won't have any reference to sin. That's the view of sin in heaven now, and I know it's hard to believe, and I think that's what this is talking about. You mean God doesn't look down and see all the sin in the world? No. He looks down, if he's even looking down, <laughs> if he's not here, you know, and might look down 10 feet or something. He's here. He's with us. Where do we go from his presence? And, and, and he's not sitting in judgment of sin. To do so would be to sit in judgment of his son who's seated right next to him waiting until his enemies are put under his feet. What he's doing is he's wooing and calling and he's watching his spirit. and He is his spirit. Taking everything that the father gave to Jesus and desiring to give it and manifest it in us. That's who we are. It's bigger. It's bigger than just, uh, I don't have to say I'm sorry if I sin. It's a, it's, a, it's a shift in mindset that the Holy Spirit is acting out the will of the Father to make happen in our lives. And honestly, it takes all of the distraction of heaven and all of the religiousness of church to keep holding sin in front of us as if it were the main issue. But it is not. Jesus is the main issue. And we are in him. And he is in us. So then here is our ministry council. Let us hold on tightly to our confession of hope without being diverted. Fretting over sin is a diversion. Creating mass movements of sin-focused repentance is a diversion. We're not to be diverted. The one who announced the message to us is trustworthy. What? This is super important. Again, using the, the return thing in, in 2 Chronicles 7.14 as an example, the trustworthiness of God in that kind of thinking puts him at a distance trustworthy that if we repent enough of the right things, he'll respond. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about that will that Jesus came to do that was written in the scrolls in the books. 
That God is trustworthy. The God who purposed to have sons, and that's revealed in Ephesians. The God who says uh, at the end of John uh, uh, 17, where Jesus prayed, I have revealed uh, you to them, and I will reveal it to them. That's the trustworthiness. It's the trustworthiness to, to do exactly what it says here earlier in this, this chapter. To purify us. To sanctify us once forever. He's trustworthy to do that. It's his will. He's acting on his own will. To make you a full-fledged, functional, absolutely confident, fully faith-assured, loved-by-Papa Christian. It's happening. It is happening. It's happening in our lives. It's happening around the world. The one who announced the message to us is trustworthy. Let us as well. So now here's, here's ministry. Let us as well stir up one another's minds to energetic effort in love and good works. We mustn't do what some people have gotten into the habit of doing, neglecting to meet together. Instead, we must encourage one another and all the more as you can see the great day coming closer. Uh, I think the New American Standard says to provoke one another to love and good deeds. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, I'm trying to set the tone of the New Covenant understanding in our minds so that we each have permission. You have permission toward me and toward the people around you, and I have permission towards you and the people in my family and around me to say, what can we do to manifest this great life we find ourselves in? What can we do? I did a little something the other day, and it's so silly, and it's no big deal. I'm not trying to say that, but I'm trying to I, I walked away from having done it, and I felt like I was embodying my, my, my reality in the New Covenant. I was at the hardware store picking up some stuff uh, that I needed over at the, the New Sanctuary, and there was a, a gentleman older than myself who had bought some concrete, and his truck was backed up next to where mine was at the hardware store. And uh, I saw him carrying that first one over, and you know how heavy a bag of concrete is, or just super heavy. And he, he was a, a big, tall guy, but it looked like he was straining. And I was just in a dither. I just rushed. I jumped in my car. I turned it on. I looked at him. I go, oh, I should help him. I really felt like it. I turned it off. I got out. And I said, hey, uh, uh, may I help you with, with uh, one of these bags? He goes, oh, yeah, that'd be great. And so I, I lifted it up. And I've been, uh, Richard knows this, I've been lifting weights for a little while. So I'm like all semi-buff. And so I was able to, Whoa! and he had this big tall truck. And then he's, uh, I said, man, he's pretty heavy to be, be lifting. He goes, yeah, especially after I just got out of a double hernia. And I go, can I get the others for you? How many you got? And there's only, uh, there's only uh, two more. So I loaded them, and we talked as I was doing that. I kind of grunted, and he talked. And it was really simple. He goes, thanks a lot. I go, hey, it's okay. Now, no Jesus talk, no none of that. I just helped this dude get his cement truck uh, in the back of his truck at the prompting of the Spirit of God, got in my car, I drove away, and honest to goodness, I felt like a million bucks. I felt like I had acted like a son of the new covenant. And I felt like, like I was ranting and raving about last week. If uh, instead of all the money we spend protesting or doing other kinds of things, if we just got together and just loved people like that, just helped them like that, 
How quickly could, the, could, the, could this kingdom go from place to place? And it even starts in our own thing, because Jesus said to the disciples, he said, uh, you know, uh, if you love one another, the world will know that the Father sent me. And knowing that the Father sent Jesus is the first step to being awakened to the reality of who you are in this covenant. And so I, I don't exactly know how it's going to work out, but I know that this is the thing. So let us as well stir up one another's minds to energetic effort in love and good works. That's why I want us, the body, but I want Joyland, and I want you guys to have relationships with four or five other souls where you can spend a good chunk of your time saying, how can we act out this glorious liberty and freedom and being loved beyond doubt? How can we act that out to the people around us? How can we do that? Well, one of the things we can do is just flat out provoke one another. We can say, how can we do that? <laughs> we can meet together. You can have a Zoom meeting with four or five people. I know one of the things I love so much about the two uh, weekday uh, uh, ascensions that we have is it seems like the Lord's taking great pains to show us how to live like this, how to realize that we ha don't come to a mountain with smoke and fire. We actually are coming to the cloud of witnesses. We're coming to the, the spirits of, of men made per righteous men made perfect. We're coming to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. I mean, he's teaching us all kinds of stuff like that. How to pray, how to declare, how to breathe in the dynamic life that there is in heaven and then use that as, as the energy behind our words and behind our declarations and prayers. I know there's more. There's more to transform Honduras. And it's going to come through this exercise. It's going to come through this awareness of being sons. There's more release of healing. There's more release of creative and witty ideas, inventions. And there's more ability to just have that word in due season. So, anyway, let me read the second half of that through the mirror, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, let us also think of creative ways by which we can influence one another to find inspired expression in doing things that benefit others. Good actions give voice and volume to the love of God. In the light, well, let me, let me read that again, because that's really well put. Let us also think of creative ways by which we can influence one another to find inspired expression in doing things that benefit others. Good actions give voice and volume to the love of God. Let me tell you what that doesn't say. It doesn't say, let's put, uh, put our thoughts together how to do a bunch of Christian things. It says to do good to others, to love others. Honestly, guys, the world can be changed by us doing good to other people. And I'm not saying never mention Jesus. I'm not saying that. I'm not even saying we have to be quite as radical as it is at a place like Burning Man where there's a, an agenda there and, and we don't want to fall into that trap of, Christianizing that or something like that. But look at, look at what I said. Let us also think of creative ways by which we can influence one another to find inspired expressions in doing good things that benefit others. Inspired expression of doing things that benefit others. Of course they're going to be inspired in our life. We don't have to go somewhere to be inspired. We are that where. We are the where of inspiration. 
He's in us. We're in him. Let me keep going. Good actions give voice and volume to the love of God. And when the love of God shed abroad is recognized by men, the glory of the Lord will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. In the light, and here's why. This is why we are the inspired ones. In the light of our free access to the Father, let us extend that embrace to one another. Our gatherings are no longer a repetition of tradition, but an essential fellowship where we remind one another of our true identity. Let us do so with greater urgency now the day has dawned in our understanding. One more read through on that one and we'll close. In the light of our free access to the Father. Think about that phrase. You should think about that phrase at least once every day. I have free access to Father God, the Creator and Sustainer of the universe. Where's that scripture again? Wow! I have free access to the Creator of the universe. Ronnie. What's that reference, scripture reference? Uh, that's in Hebrews, uh, this is in the mirror, Hebrews 10.25. Let's see what it says over here in uh, in uh, N.T. Wright's. He just jumps straight to the neglecting. Um, yeah, it's in the mirror. In light of our free access to the Father, let us extend the embrace to one another. Our gatherings are no longer a repetition of tradition, but an essential fellowship where we remind one another of our true identity. The last time tonight, I'm going to pick on the Second uh, Corinthians 7.14. That entire effort is designed to remind us of an identity that is no longer ours. A people who constantly accumulate sin, create distance that creates distance between us and God, and it can only be bridged by our repentance. I want us to study about what true repentance is, and I want us to get dang good at it. But it's not the identifying factor of the accumulation of our failures and the distance it creates with God. We have access to the Father. Let's take advantage of it. We are sons of the living God by his will. Let's align ours with his. And let's jump on this. Now, what sort of discipline is there going to be? We're going to see that in the next of chapter 10 and then into 12. We're going to be taught about faith. We're going to be taught about focus. We're going to be talk, talk to, about, taught about uh, the discipline that the Father gives us. And it's going to sound like if we interpret it through a framework where there's a distance that we've got to bridge, it's going to sound like he's going right back into law, but he's not. And I understand it now. The writer of Hebrews is saying, here's what God, here's how he treats his son. You know, the famous passage about it is uh, if uh, um, you, you had uh, earthly fathers who disciplined you for a short time for a cause, how much more your heavenly father? And if you're not disciplined, you're not being treated as sons. So anyway... That's all I got. Uh, but it's if we could embrace it, guys. We must embrace it. We must embrace it. We must embrace that you are who you are and we are who we are because God has willed it to be so 
and that will is the expression of a loving father who desires sons and who has done the work necessary to create them. Amen? Any comments? Any questions? I don't even know what time it is. No, that was good, brother. That's excellent. <laughs> that yeah. brings a lot. Yeah. That just brings so much to life of what the Father's been teaching us right through the whole lot. And what I'm finding, the more we, the more we walk with him, Scripture comes more alive. And uh, that's what you did today. So praise be to God. Thank you. Praise God. Yeah. I reflect back on that uh, ascension we had at church a couple months ago uh, where there was a stairway and there were these things written on the side. And I know I bring these up all the time, but it's really meaningful to me. So Jesus comes down. We're going up this stairway, and, and it's encased in a, like a jungle and cloths and things like that outside. And you can always peek out. But we're going up this stairway, and on the edge of each one of these stone stairs is uh, a symbol and words that are important, I could tell, because they're filled with gold, but they're unreadable. And uh, so halfway up or at a certain section, there was a wide spot. You couldn't see why you're walking up, but, but we were on it waiting. And we see Jesus coming down the stairway from the top. And I, I knew for sure, because I was super curious about what it said over here that I couldn't read. And when, I, I just absolutely knew for sure when Jesus came down, and got with us, I was going to look over there and everything was going to be understandable. And he got down and nothing changed. And he noticed me looking at it. And he said, Larry, you don't have to understand something to get beyond it. And that is a truth that has settled into my heart. And I don't understand everything about this covenant. And I don't understand everything about the parts in me that still almost fight to have it explained and to know if I do this, you'll do this. If I do this, you'll do this. And it creates that dualistic quid pro quo kind of thing. I don't fully understand how to get rid of that. But I trust the words that Jesus spoke in that ascension into, into our lives and into my heart. And I'm sharing with you. You don't have to understand something to get beyond it. I used to think so. And it was a lie from the enemy because if if I, if I have to thoroughly understand everything that I need to get beyond, that means I have to spend an awful lot of my attention looking at the things that I'm not supposed to be. And I think this is the ticket. Um, look at the things that we are supposed to be. Make sense? Cool.